We're turning to once again this evening, Acts chapter 5. The apostles have been imprisoned for preaching Christ in the temple. They've now been wonderfully set loose by the angel, miraculously. When the Sanhedrin went to fetch them, they found that the gates, the prison doors were shut, but the prisoners were gone. So they found them in the temple once again teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. We'll pick it up at verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? Behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who were slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. And the Lord will add his blessing to that reading from his word for his name's sake. Would you bow with me for a moment, please, in a word of prayer? Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, the words of the hymn writer come to mind as we bow our hearts at thy throne. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Our souls that are helpless hang upon thee. 
All life comes from thee. All power resides in thee. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt show us mercy. And thou wilt preach to us, even as the apostles said, may the Holy Spirit be that co-witness of thy servant tonight as the word of God is preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Verses 30 and 31 is what we've been looking at. The God of our fathers, said Peter, raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. From, from that text, we have been seeking to determine just, just what kind of Christ the apostles preached. What does it mean when they say they, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ? What kind of a Christ did they preach in the early church? We want to know the answer to that question because, as I said last week, what the church needs today is the preaching of the apostles Christ in the power of the apostles. I'm implying, of course, that men can present and they can preach a Christ that is not the Christ of the apostles and certainly not the Christ of the Scriptures. Once that happens, once this Christ and his gospel is watered down, altered, once his mediatorial offices, I mean the offices of prophet, priest, and king are relegated to a place of such unimportance that they're not even mentioned anymore from the pulpit. Once the central theme of a preacher's ministry is no longer the person and the work of Jesus Christ, there's going to be a corresponding decline in the spiritual life of the church. Why is that? That's because the preaching of Christ as Lord and Savior is the key to the power and the purity of the church. The theme we've been tracing through this text is the God-exalted Christ. The God-exalted Christ. In Peter's response to the council's question asking them, why they continue to preach and teach in Christ's name, we've begun to find out just how the apostles looked upon Christ and therefore just how they preached him. You see, that determines the kind of Christ you preach, the kind of Christ that you know. It's how you view Christ. The, kind of, the way you view Christ will always come out in how you present Christ. So true of them. We're only able to look at the first truth that arises from verse 30, which is all about the path that led to Christ's exaltation, the path that led to it. We, we learn the all-important lesson that the way to the crown is always through the cross. Peter speaks in that verse of the suffering and the death of Christ upon the tree. Him, him, ye slew and hanged on the tree. Before God would exalt Christ at his right hand as a prince and savior, Christ had to be brought low as the man of sorrows. Before he became a prince and a savior, exalted to the right hand of God, he had to come down here first 
and to be brought low as the man of sorrows. The way to exaltation in God's plan has always been through humiliation and his son Jesus Christ was no exception. It's not going to be any different for us. If we want to get higher, we have to get lower. Right? Never forget that. If you want to get higher in your spiritual life, you, want, you need to get lower in your spiritual life. Therefore, to preach the Christ of the apostles is to make much, as they have been doing as they were preaching and teaching in the temple. It is to make much of his suffering, to dwell quite a bit on his shame, his reproach, to preach much of his cross work. That's what it is to preach Christ. Principles, preaching principles. It's very popular. Biblical principles. Preaching principles and plans can never and will never replace the preaching of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They're not the same thing. I take the words of the hymn we sang tonight, Ask ye what great thing I know, what delights and stirs me so, what the high reward I win, whose the name I glory in, Jesus Christ, the crucified. The old preaching and the old hymns have this constant theme of Christ's suffering. You don't find it so much in the new ones, but the old ones are chock full of Christ crucified. The suffering is shame. His leaving the ivory palaces and entering into a world of woe and wickedness. As we saw in the Bible class this morning in our study of the Lord's Supper, the focus in both Old and New Testaments is always on the blood, the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ. God's Word makes much of the blood, and that means that to preach Christ as the apostles preached Christ is to make much of that blood. It is to preach Christ as the apostles preached Him, to make much of the blood shedding, the pouring out of His life unto death, because the life of the flesh is in the blood. The message of the blood atonement is all about the only way that God and sinners can be reconciled, for it's the only way that sins can be blotted out from God's sight forever. It's only the shed blood of Jesus that covers our sin from the sight of God. So the blood that was always shed in the Old Testament was blood, as I pointed out this morning, that always had to be sprinkled. You never had the shedding of blood without the sprinkling of blood. You never had the shedding of blood without the application of the blood. You never have the pouring out of Christ's blood without the application of that blood. The blood that's shed must be applied and whatever is intended to be accomplished by that must be accomplished. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Equally so, with the shedding of blood, there must be remission. With the shedding of blood, there must be remission of sin. But as we continue to look at this passage about the God-exalted Christ, I want us to turn 
from the path that led to the Christ exaltation in the second place to note the position of the exalted Christ, the position. Peter says that him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. There is the position of the God-exalted Christ, a position that as a result of his humiliation, he has been lifted up into a place as a prince and savior. Gone forever are the days of Christ's humiliation. Jesus in his heavenly glory, wrote the hymn writer. Jesus in his heavenly glory sits with God upon the throne, now no more to be forsaken, his humiliation gone. Nevermore shall God, Jehovah, smite the shepherd with the sword. Ne'er again shall cruel sinners set at naught our glorious Lord. Never again will that happen. Peter tells the Sanhedrin, that although they had put him down as a criminal, God had lifted him up to be a prince and a savior. Let me say, if Christ is going to be preached as the apostles preached him, then he must be preached as a prince and a savior. What does that mean? Let's break it down. Christ is exalted as prince. That's first. First. There is a phrase very similar to this that Peter uses four times in his epistles. That phrase is Lord and Savior. And it's always in that order. Lord first and Savior. The word prince here carries the idea of first, of leader, of ruler, of sovereign. That Before mentioning that Christ was exalted a Savior, Peter preached that God exalted him as prince as Lord, as King. Well, let's, let's let that truth sink down into our hearts and minds for a moment. He is a prince. He's been exalted to be a prince. That's what he is right now, a sovereign. What does that mean, however? You know, you, you can follow the old crowd. Uh, get all excited. You'll tell everybody that Jesus Christ is King. And not have a clue is what you're talking about. Or singing about. What's that mean? He's king. It means in the first place that Christ has been lifted by his father to a place of honor. A place of honor. He is at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what he says. Majesty, by the way, only a term in reference to God used in the New Testament. It speaks of his greatness. It speaks of his prominence above all. While he walked the earth, Christ was treated by his own people as scum. Not to be believed, rejected. But God the Father has exalted his Son to his right hand as the King of glory. The Prince of glory. All things are put under his feet. And in that exalted position, he is to be honored, he is to be revered as the Lord of creation. Christ is certainly the meek and lowly Jesus. But the sinner, and the saint for that matter, must be confronted with the fact 
that while he is the meek and lowly Jesus, lowly of heart, whose yoke is easy and his burden is light, the sinner must be confronted with the fact that he is the prince of God. He is the king who is to be honored, who is to be revered. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. What light that sheds on the state of the sinner who is without Christ. Yes, it's true. His sin has brought him into misery. It always does. Sin is misery. There's no happiness in transgressing the law of God. But you see, what it says is that sinner is in rebellion because he's in rebellion against the law of the king. When you confront sinners with the fact that Christ is the king and therefore his law will be carried out and you will suffer the consequences if the law of the Lord is not obeyed, if there is a rejection of the Lord's law, then now you've got one. Wait a minute. This is one who I am to revere, who I am to honor, and I am living in rebellion against that law because I am my own law. I'm doing my own thing in the way I want to live. That's what the sinner says. That's heaping scorn upon the one God says is king. Exalted as prince. I tell you one thing, those Sanhedrin, most of them died lost. To this very hour, they've been suffering in God's hell, remembering how they despised, how they dishonored the Son of God. They see it now, but it's too late. What light that fact sheds upon the esteem that every believer should have for their prince, the Lord of glory, the value we should be placing upon Jesus Christ because he's God's prince. The Lord says, This is my prince, this is the king. Honor him. Fear him. It also means when he's been exalted as prince that he has been lifted to a place not only of absolute honor but absolute power. All power in heaven and earth Jesus said it had been committed unto him. All power in heaven and earth by his Father. He is rightly called in Scripture the blessed and only potentate. Him hath God exalted with his right hand. Why did Peter, why did the Holy Spirit move Peter to say that? Him hath God exalted with his right hand. Well, whenever you read of the right hand of God in Scripture, you are reading of the term, the phrase that refers especially to to the power of God united with the wisdom of God. The power of God united with His wisdom. Not only does He have the power in His right hand, the strong right hand, but He has that wisdom to do what that right hand needs to do. Power linked with wisdom. That's the right hand of God. And who is at the right hand of God? It is 
the Lord Jesus Christ. So to preach Christ as these apostles preached him is to preach him as the one who has absolute power and absolute wisdom. Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God, right? Power and wisdom. If I'm going to preach Christ, I must preach him as such. The prince, exalted the right hand by the right hand of God to this place. What what the sinner, and indeed what the saint needs to hear is of a Christ that specializes in things thought impossible. The sinner imagines that his sin is too great to be forgiven. His life is so ruined it's beyond being salvaged. But there is no answer, there's no remedy. But Christ has been exalted to be a prince. Absolute power. Nothing too hard for him. The saint sees so often how feeble his faith is, how weak his graces actually are. comes into situations in life where he's absolutely at a loss as to what to do and which way to turn. Indeed, the child of God is often brought to a Red Sea experience. He doesn't know what to do. Don't, don't, don't you see that just the thing that the child of God needs to hear at that point in time is not some sermon on self-help. Not something that you must do and that you must be. What the child of God needs at that point in time is to be pointed to one who has absolute power Amen. to open up the Red Sea, to make the mountains fall down flat and be cast into the sea. That's what he needs to hear. That's the Christ they preached. Christ, thirdly, has been exalted not only to a place of honor and of absolute power, but to a place of absolute dominion. He's the prince. He's the king. He's the Lord. Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah chapter 7, that the government shall be upon his shoulder. A prince is one who rules, who reigns. He, a prince, especially when you're referring to this prince, unlike earthly princes and kings. This prince does as he wills, when he wills, where he wills, and how he wills. He's the prince. He's the king, the king. If Christ is going to be preached as the, as the apostles preached him, then he must be preached as the absolute Lord, sovereign of all. To preach Christ is to preach Christ as the Savior of sinners. That's very true. And I'll get to that in a second. But that's not the first term that the Holy Spirit moved Peter to write, to say that day before the council. He's been exalted a prince before it talks about the Savior. He's been exalted Lord before he mentions the Savior. Therefore, if I am going to preach him aright, I must first preach him as Lord, as prince, as king. 
And I say to you again, that has been lost sight of in this generation. What did Paul and Silas tell the Philippian jailer when he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, believe on Jesus and thou shalt be saved. No, that's not what they said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's the reason for the order of words. Paul says in Romans 10 and 9, you all know it, I'm sure off by heart, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe on the, in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But it's the Lord Jesus. The Lord. Christ Jesus is Lord. And he will be no man's savior if that man does not take him to be his prince. They walk hand in hand. If you have a savior, you have a prince. If you have a prince, you have a savior. There will be no remission of sins by Christ unless a man gives himself to be ruled by Christ. Many preachers for the last several decades have gotten this all backward. I think that at least when I listen and when I read when Christ is spoken of in much of what's called gospel preaching, it is mainly his work as priest that is emphasized. And then only half of that work is really mentioned, and I mean by that, that priestly work about the shedding of the blood. So little is made of the other part of the priest work, and that is intercession. He presents the blood, the high priest does, but the high priest also intercedes. You don't hear a whole lot about the intercession. You don't hear much preaching about the session of Christ at the right hand of God. But Christ is not only priest. And Christ is not only prophet. He is prophet, priest, and king. It's just when preachers ignore the gospel in this point that they have stopped preaching Christ as the apostles preached him. And so you hear about the unbiblical notion being propagated that men can have Christ as their Savior, but they just haven't made Him the Lord of their life yet. There's nothing so contradicted by Scripture than that notion, that you can have Christ as your Savior, but not have Him as your Lord. After all, you know, I, I understand the difficulty. Preachers have to come up with some kind of explanation why all of these people that they have gotten to come down the aisles and gotten into the baptismal tanks are never seen in church again. And they never see a changed life. They never become disciples, followers of the Lord. You've got to explain that somehow. Oh, well, you know... He, he took Christ as his Savior. He just hasn't made him his Lord yet. 
But that'll come. Well, I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, if it didn't come at the first, it hadn't come yet. What happens when Christ is preached as a prince and a savior? Men are brought face to face with the lordship of Christ at the very outset. It's, it's, it's telling them up front, he's the Lord. And, and you bow to him. It's not, oh, somebody saved me from this mess of a life that I've created for myself. No, he's the Lord and Savior. We, we need to get back to the preaching of Christ and all his glory, and to do that we must preach and teach him as a prince. That's the Christ that preached, the apostles preached. Read, read throughout Acts. Just go ahead and read what they preached. Christ not only as exalted as prince, but Peter says that God has exalted him as prince and savior. So he's exalted as savior. And the fact is, he's the only savior of sinners. There is only one person that God has exalted into that position, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. Christ is the Lord of all, including salvation. Putting those two thoughts together, you find that he alone is the prince savior. He alone is the king savior. The kingly savior, the lordly savior. No one reigns with Christ as redeemer. Amen. There is no as the Church of Rome will teach, there is no co-redeemer with Jesus Christ. There is no co-redemptrix. That's who they say Mary is. She's co-redemptrix. She is a co-redeemer with Jesus Christ. It's heresy. There's no such thing. Christ is alone as redeemer of sinners. For there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. One mediator. No co about it. One mediator. And there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No other name but that name. The word for Savior means deliverer, rescuer. There is no other answer to your sin or mine. No one else can rescue us. No one else can deliver us from sin than Jesus Christ. No one. Ever. It's true before we got saved, it's true after we're saved. No one, no one can deliver us. No one can rescue us from our sin save Jesus Christ. He's the one God has exalted his right hand as Prince and Savior. He, can, he, he alone can deliver us, rescue us from the penalty of sin and rescue us from this power that sin has and we all know it so well. You wrestle with it every day. The power of sin in your life. I can't get a handle on it. No, you're right, you can't. There's one who can. And that's Jesus Christ. I have no hope but in Him to rescue me from my sin. 
Many years ago, I read a devotional by Spurgeon. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Spurgeon said that's what the child of God needs to keep pleading when he finds there's some sin that he just cannot get any victory over. Go and plead that name, Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. That's what it means. You said you would save your people from your sins. Well, here is this sin, and I'm asking you to save me from this sin. Save me from it. He's the only one that can do it. That's the place the Lord has exalted him at his right hand. Therefore, to preach Christ, that as the apostles preach Christ, means that Christ in every aspect as Savior must be given the preeminence. If the lost are to be saved, they must believe that no one and nothing can save them but Christ. There's no hope to look anywhere else but to Jesus Christ. You have to take away all hope. You have to take away, tear down all hope and anything else and anyone else if they want to be saved from their sin. A man must be stripped of every, every vestige of trust in self-reformation, in aisle-walking, in being baptized, in his decision or the decision card that he signed when he walked the aisle. Even saved from any hope or trust in the sinner's prayer. God has not exalted aisle walking as the Savior. He has not exalted making a decision as the Savior. He's not exalted human will as the Savior of sinners. Christ alone is the peculiar and only Savior that God has exalted. It is in coming to Him that we're saved. It's by resting on His blood and righteousness that we are accepted by God. No other way but this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Do you understand what you mean? You've sung that song perhaps for decades. Do you know what you're singing when you sing it? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, the sweetest frame of my mind or my feelings. I dare not trust, I dare not lean on the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Christ alone is the only one who can deliver you or me from our sins. If a Christian knows anything of the grace of God in his heart, one thing he knows for certain, he feels the power of sin within him. He struggles and wrestles and weeps 
and longs to be changed and longs to be free. He wants deliverance. It is as one of my children told me years ago, with tears rolling down his face, Dad, I try, but I never seem to change. You know what that feels like. I try. What you need to see, what you need to hear, is that Christ has been exalted, the only Savior, the only Deliverer, the only one who can rescue you from your sins. He doesn't try to do anything. Amen. He does it. Say on. The devil wants you and me to believe that there is no deliverance. There's no possibility of change. That we're not going to be different. We can't get the victory. Him hath God exalted to be a prince and a savior. The one who has all power. Absolutely sovereign and died and shed his blood for that very reason. If the Lord doesn't rescue you and doesn't rescue me from our sins, we're all in trouble. There is no other hope. There is no other remedy. To him we look. On him we lean. The answer... Christ, as Prince and Savior, fights against our sin. Because anything that is our enemy is His enemy. Yeah, I, I'm tickled pink about that. If it's my enemy, it's His enemy. He'll deal with it. Like Jehoshaphat, Lord, I have no might against this enemy that's come. Neither know I what to do. But my eyes are upon thee. And God responded in essence, I'll take care of him. I'll deal with him. Don't you realize, child of God, that's what the Lord's been doing all throughout your life? Been dealing with your enemies, been dealing with your sins. Little by little, been rescuing you from them, overcoming them. You're not what you used to be. You're not. You have been changed. You think not, but you have been changed. That's what Jesus does. That's what Christ has been exalted to be, a prince and a savior. Not just to have the position, but to carry out the responsibilities of those positions as prince and savior of his people. That's, that's what makes the gospel such good news. Good news. Would you not agree with me? You can disagree, of course. My wife disagrees with me all the time. 
Not really, she doesn't. Would you not agree with me that this is very seldom the Christ you hear preached today? How many Christians do you know that are trusting in their childhood decision? In the fact they can tell you when they walk down the aisle of some church and sign the card that they have been baptized Some are actually, depending upon what the mother and father told them about what happened when they were a child. Well, yes, you, you believed in the Lord when you were seven. You just, beside your bed, you bowed and you asked the Lord to save you. And they have no more recollection of that, hardly than a man in the moon. But that's what they're banking to be in heaven on. Many are depending upon what others think they are. Well, so-and-so, they, they, they think I'm a Christian. I'm okay. And you actually want to go out into eternity based upon that kind of hope and trust. Finally, to preach Christ as the exalted Savior means that we must preach him as the overcoming Savior of sinners. Exaltation, you see, that word speaks of victory. When Christ was exalted at the right hand of God, the Savior, it means that he prevailed in all that he set out to do. I mean, do you think for one moment that Jesus Christ actually left heaven and came into this world without knowing what his mission was? Was there no design? Was there no design, no divine design in Christ coming into this world? Was there no mission he was to accomplish? What, pray tell, did it mean when he said from the cross, cried from the cross, finished? What was finished? What was finished was what my father sent me to do. And that was to save my people from their sin, to accomplish their salvation, to blot their sins out forever from my Father's sight. I did that. Finished, praise God. Finished. There's nothing, there's nothing else they need to do. I have done it all. And that's what we mean when we sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I mean, do you really believe he paid it all? He paid it all. If he paid it all, there's nothing left I have to pay. He actually accomplished redemption. He accomplished it. He accomplished the forgiveness of sins. He secured it. He didn't make it simply a possibility so that men could be saved. What kind of a salvation is that, brothers and sisters? That Well, it might happen. He, he, he did not suffer. He did not shed his blood. He did not go through that humiliation and be exalted, the prince and the savior, so that some for whom he came, hoping that he would save them, not on your life.
He knew exactly what he was doing. I have come to redeem my people from their sins. And they will be redeemed, every last one of them. I am God's Prince and Savior. I will overcome. I will not fail. Isaiah 42 is messianic in nature. And speaking of Christ, it says in the verse 4, He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he hath set judgment in the earth. Even in the death of Christ, the darkest moment in human history, even that was his crowning victory. Through his death on the cross, Christ overcame every foe of his people. Sin, he overcame it. Because why? What does his death have to do with my sin? Well, my sin was laid on him. It was charged to his account. And he suffered in my stead. He took my sin away. He bore the wrath of God in my stead. It's been dealt with. It actually happened. It didn't potentially happen. It actually happened. That was part of his suffering. He endured the wrath of God. He actually took my sin in his own body on the tree. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us became against him. He overcame hell. He suffered the equivalency of hell on the cross because the law of God said that sin must be punished with death. And I'll tell you why I'm not going to suffer eternity in hell because Jesus suffered that for me on Calvary. Amen. How did he do it? I don't know. I don't need to know. I know that he is God. And only God could do something like that, but I know that he did. He overcame Satan. Oh, the devil wanted him to come down from the cross. That's what they kept shouting out to him. If thou be the Son of God, save yourself and come down. Come down. Don't you, don't you understand that the, the devil understood the Old Testament scriptures? He knew all about the sacrifices and the lamb and what all that meant. And here now was, he heard the story, he heard the preaching of John the Baptist, the lamb of God. Oh, the lamb has come. He understood what this death meant. But all that he tried to do, everything, he was vanquished by Christ at the cross. Christ overcame death because he rose from the dead again. Those are our enemies, you know, folks. Sin and hell and Satan and death. And he's conquered them all. What have I to dread? What have I to fear now? What do I need to worry about? What's, what circumstances?
Because Jesus Christ is the overcoming Savior of sinners, everyone for whom Christ died, everyone for whom that blood, that atoning blood was shed, will be found in heaven and not in hell. It's not going to happen. He'll not lose one of them because he has been exalted at the right hand of God as a prince and savior who has overcome. And that certainly makes for good preaching. And good living. May the Lord write his word on our souls for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, it's great to be saved. We know, Lord, it's all because of Calvary, the man of Calvary. We pray, Lord, that we will live, walk away from the house of God tonight, a growing esteem in our hearts for Jesus Christ a gladness that will flow out from the reality of what he has done for us and what he's doing even now. We look forward to the day when we can see him and thank him face to face for dying for us. Oh, until then, Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us to preach this Christ that the apostles preached and to preach him in that power in which they preached him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And amen.